Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hey everybody, welcome to the February 2016 episode of Consult. It's so great to have you back with us. I have a great interview this month with Brandon Trebitowski of Pixagon, and we really touched on a huge range of topics, and there's a lot of great insight there. But before we get into it, I want to address the whole parse situation. Obviously, our last episode was with Vasco Morado of Parse, developer advocate at Parse, and we recorded that episode on January 14th. And just two weeks later, Parse announced that they're shutting down, and this has been big news in the industry. So obviously, there's a lot of irony here that we had this episode um, about Parse, and then two weeks later, it shut down, and we were selling Parse hardcore because I'm a big user of it. They, you know, It's not like Parse paid me. I love Parse. And I used Parse on a lot of consulting projects. And I just want you to know that I had no idea, obviously, that Parse was shutting down. I don't work for Parse. But uh, Fosco, I don't think he did either. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But, um, you know, I I don't think that um, going into the episode, he was aware. And he's actually written a post on Medium since then that I'll link to in the show notes about uh, how this all came about just kind of coincidentally at the same time when they were releasing the open source server. So, what are you going to do now with your Parse apps? So you're, maybe you're like me and you have a couple apps built on Parse. I have more than a couple, actually, including some consulting projects. I think the first thing you need to do is reach out to your clients. So if you have a client that you have an ongoing relationship with and the app is built in Parse, you better let them know sooner rather than later that you have this issue. I think if it's an existing Parse app that and you feel comfortable maintaining your own servers, the path of least resistance is to take advantage of their open source server and install it on either a VPS or bare metal, what have you, depending on what makes more sense for your situation. That's the path of least resistance. I think if you have an app that's iOS only, I think you CloudKit is a pretty uh, firm ground to build upon. Now, of course, just like Facebook deleted parse, we could see Apple shut down CloudKit, but they, they are using CloudKit for iCloud Photo Library, iCloud Drive, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a lot invested in the success of CloudKit. So it seems kind of unlikely that CloudKit is going anywhere, but it's not a cross-platform solution. There are a lot of back backends as a service that are from startups and really small companies. I don't think that's a reliable way to uh, be building your app to, on the basis of another startup. So I think you want to look at the big boys. Of course, you can go to less abstracted solutions from Amazon or Microsoft, um, but Google also has Firebase, and Firebase provides a lot of what Parse did. Um, maybe it's more geared a little bit towards messaging apps, but if you're dealing across with a cross-platform app and you don't want to use CloudKit, therefore, because you don't want to be pinned into iOS and not have an Android solution, then I think Firebase could make a lot of sense. So those are the two options I'm really looking at. And then, of course, if you're uh, somebody who has a little more server-side experience, you should consider maybe just building your own backend, which is also an option I'm looking at for some of my next projects. So if you listen to the most recent episode of Under the Radar with Marco Arment and David Smith, they talk about uh, building, actually the most recent two episodes, they've been talking about 
building your own backend using you know a standard stack like Linux, Apache, uh, and PHP, and MySQL. So definitely check out those two most recent episodes of Under the Radar if that's a direction that you're thinking of going and you don't have previous experience doing that. But yeah, just a great irony that we had the Parse episode right before um, all this went down. Now, I have a great episode today with Brandon, and uh, we actually recorded the episode before the Parse announcement. So we recorded this episode back in January. So there is a little bit uh, of talk about Parse that doesn't make sense now in the context of today. So without further ado, uh, let me give you that episode, and I hope you enjoy it. And I encourage you to give me your feedback, as always, at Dave Kopeck on Twitter, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. And please leave us reviews on iTunes. That would really help with our popularity on the iTunes podcast store. So my guest today is Brandon Trebitowski. He's the leader of Pixagon, a medium to almost, I would say, large-sized consulting firm doing iOS projects out of New Mexico. Brandon, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me here, Dave. I'm really excited. So take us back. Tell us how you originally got into consulting. Where did this journey start for you? Sure, yeah. So the journey, I would say, started at around college. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I started college in 2005, and uh, during that time frame, the iPhone had recently come out, and the sort of hot thing for the iPhone were uh, web apps. So I built a can full of these um, and realized this was sort of the next big thing. Now, um, in 2008, as you know, Apple released the official SDK. However, the SDK was under NDA, so there wasn't much of a developer community. So recognizing this, uh, I decided to start a blog called iCodeBlog.com. Luckily for me, Apple never contacted me about the NDA. Uh, But the blog quickly grew to um, over 100,000 readers a month. I had 10,000 RSS subscribers. Uh, It was sort of a runaway success for me while I was in college. Wow, that's really incredible. I'm actually the same college year as you, class of 2009 as well. So how did you go from the blog to building the consulting company? Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, naturally having a popular blog, I got reached out to quite a bit, especially early on in the uh, iOS space, there weren't a lot of consultants. So there was a company that said, hey, uh, we want to hire you and want to buy your blog. And so, you know, this blew my mind as a college student. You know, they gave me like $5,000 for it, which I thought was an insane amount of money at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so they hired me and and, uh, I began working for them. So after that, uh, I would would eventually work for them for the next four years or so. um, And I became their director of engineering, uh, built up a team of 16 plus mobile developers. We built some really cool products for ESPN and Google and and Food Network among others. Wow! And so uh, until one day uh, the company was acquired by and got a new CEO, and so the new CEO and I didn't quite see eye to eye. I'd say this was uh, mid twenty twelve or so, and by the end of twenty twelve, December early December twenty twelve, I get a uh, Skype call from him. Just shows up on my screen, says, "Hey Brandon, we need to talk." He's like, uh, "We're restructuring, and I'm letting you go." Wow. Just no warning, nothing. So, and you, know, you had uh, kind of been the guy in charge there. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of, you know, one of the higher paid employees. I'd imagine he was making budget cutbacks. And uh, so I was sort of the first on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, after that, I sort of composed myself, took my family to the zoo for the day, you know. <laughs> and uh, the very next day, I just said, hey, I can do this on my own. Uh, I know the entire pipeline end to end. 
Um, and so I found my first contract and, uh, you know, the rest is history. So this was in New Mexico before you started Pixagon? The, the company that you were at before was also in New Mexico? No. Okay. So I should have cleared that up. The company I was at before, um, it was actually founded in California and then they moved up to Portland. So I was managing a fairly large team remotely and I would just go to Portland, you know, every other month or so. Okay. Okay. So Pixagon has grown pretty quickly uh, from 2012 to 2015. I saw you guys have about 12 employees. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I believe nine of them are W2 employees and then we have a handful of contractors. Okay. Sure. That makes sense. And how have you grown the team out in New Mexico? Because New Mexico, of course, it's famous for, that's where Microsoft started back with the MITS days. And then you have aerospace companies down there. And there is definitely a tech scene, but it's not San Francisco, Silicon Valley. How did you grow the team out in New Mexico? Absolutely. Um, it's a really, it's a really great question. Um, to be honest with you, you know, I, I, my roots were in remote developments. So most of my team is distributed. So we're a very distributed first. We don't have an, an official office space. Okay. Um, you know, we might work um, together at co-working spaces and things like that. However, we're all, I would say a good majority of the team is local. And we're, we're still remote using tools like Slack and Jira to sort of glue everything together. And then we have a handful of guys outside of the state as well. Okay, as you hired the local folks, were they from New Mexico or did they move to New Mexico to become part of the team? So that's an interesting question. A lot of the local guys are guys that are either good friends of mine or um, people I've worked with in the past. Um, and so, so I actually haven't, I haven't flown anybody out here yet. Okay, fair enough. And let's talk a little bit about some of the incredible clients that you've had with Pixagon because I noticed that you've really worked with the big boys uh, how have you gone to acquire such incredible clients? Like, what's been your your marketing strategy? <laughs> so, my biggest marketing strategy since that you know first day I started iCode Blog was to be active in the community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, the more I put into the community, the more I got back out of the community. I would continually contribute resources. Um, you know, not only does am I helping my fellow developer, but I'm also building sort of this, this mobile presence and establishing myself as an authority. Um, and so as, you know, my personal blog now is shifting away more from code and more about the business end of things and hiring and, and things like that. Um, so I would say blogging is a huge part of it. Also, another big part is to really, um, net, I, I never really turned down a lot of opportunities to network. So I'll go to coffee, to lunch, to breakfast with whomever is interested in talking to me. So it's really just, afforded me a lot of opportunities, and I've been able to be very choosy about the, uh, the most interesting ones. Now, the team that you've built at Pixagon, how do you go about the hiring process to find them? You said some of them have been friends, some of them have been people that you've known before, but when you're bringing on a new, let's say, contract iOS developer, what does the hiring process looks like, look like at Pixagon? Um, yeah, so I, I really pride myself in my hiring process, and so I was... You know, when I worked at the previous consultancy, that was a big thing for me. That's where I really learned to hire. And I feel like uh, that is one of the skills that I, that I really have is the ability to um, find the right people. So my, you know, my very first step uh, is when somebody comes to me or I, I approach somebody, I will give them a paid programming test. Um, everybody hates programming tests. It's a waste of their time. Um, and they're not going to put forth their best effort, especially if they're just, you know, you're, see you're seeking 60 plus jobs at a time. You're not going to put forth your best effort. So what I do is I say, hey, I will pay you whether I hire you or not. And it's actually a tiered test. So if you want to do these features, you get this much. You With these features, you get this much. And so and you kind of have as much time as you need. 
Um, what's, what's interesting is I was reading an article on Hacker News the other day, and Automatic, uh, you know, of WordPress, they do their hiring in much the similar way. So I was feeling like I'm um, kind of on the right path here. Yeah, no, uh, I saw that. Uh, and there's, there is some controversy around it, right? But you feel there is a strong correlation between performance on these assignments, these paid assignments, and eventual performance as an employee. So the way I structure the paid programming assignments, um, they are small apps generally, but they cover a wide enough range of skill sets that I'm interested in. So it's an app that goes and fetches content from a server, has to store that in a local cache, present it to the user, allow the user to modify the data, and send it back to the server. And you know, 99% of the client projects we're working on uh, basically use that exact same process. And so it gives me a really good idea of how that developer is going to work and how their code's going to look. That makes sense. Have you ever had a developer that scored amazingly on this project and then didn't do very well as a, let's say, contract employee? Um, you know, I've had, I, I, I wouldn't say I've had someone who did amazing. I think I've had somewhere I was in a rush to hire, so I didn't quite look over their uh, results of their, their test as early on. Uh, and, uh, you know, they got midway through a project and I did have to let them go eventually. And it was actually less due to their ability to write code and more to how they interacted with the clients. I see. I see. I want to go back to the whole idea of you being in New Mexico a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Does that ever hurt you in being accessible to clients that might be in San Francisco or New York? Are you constantly on airplanes? How does that work out for you in terms of face-to-face -face, uh, meetings? Actually, to be honest with you, it hasn't been a huge issue for me. Um, you know, I, I do have distributed clients around the U.S., um, and you'd be surprised at how infrequent they require me to travel. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not super interested in, in traveling. We've had some actually some enormous clients that we've turned down work um, for that just simply because they wanted a developer in their office for two weeks out of the month every month for like six months straight. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just not interested in working that way. I really like working distributed. Um, I like traveling, but I like traveling on my own time with my family. Um, so um, I, I really, like I said, I haven't really done too much of that. Okay, that's fair enough. And how does the client process work at Pixagon? So a client comes to you, it sounds like most of the time, and how do you take them through the steps from first introduction to contract? Sure. Yeah, you're right. Many of our leads are inbound. We haven't done too much outbound sales just yet. Um, so yeah, as a client comes in, um, obviously, first step is to assess uh, what it is they want to build. Um, you know, I, I'm really a big proponent in um, ensuring the success of my clients. So, uh, you know, if the client's product isn't necessarily going to be successful, or I don't necessarily feel it's going to be successful, I might, I might convey that to the client early on, um, you know, as more of a word of caution. For example, I get pitched Instagram clones constantly. Yes. <laughs> and so I don't necessarily, you know, always want to take those on. Um, you know, I guess if the client knew all of the risks, they had a solid plan, then I, I might consider it. Uh, but I want to, you know, I, I feel it's my job, it's all developers' job to educate their clients um, and uh, just, just let them know what really works and what doesn't. So that's sort of the first step is determining viability. Um, next, I, you know, I, I honestly, I want to see if it aligns with our company's sort of core values. Um, we really try to pride ourselves in what we, we call ourselves builders of meaningful software. So um, 
we want to build software that has positive impact on people and you know enriching their lives. So you know, for example, at, at one point I turned down a a project to build this app for for um, a group to like ostracize teenagers. It was it just didn't sit right with me. Uh, and to be honest, and it was actually just for equity. And it turned out the guy before anything even got started, there was an acquisition, and uh, you know I lost out on hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. that would have been in my equity. But you know I still feel bad. I still feel good about it because uh, it just wasn't in line with my core values. Um, so you know, moving moving along, then we'll have some uh, discussions with myself and senior engineers. Uh, start looking at this. What's you know what staff is involved? Assuming we want to move forward with the project, um, and uh, and if if everybody's everybody's good, I usually enlist the help of my senior employees, and we just sort of draw up a uh, a scope document. Um, you know, just spreadsheet or whatever, and stick it into a proposal and send it off to the client. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, interesting part of your business is that it sounds like you're dealing with both very large companies that are coming to you with established brands, and then you're also dealing with people as small as individuals. Is that accurate? Um, yes, it is. Um, however, as I've you know growing the company, it's harder and harder for me to take on self-funded projects. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that. Um, they, these people are sometimes too close to their product, and so it's hard for me to sometimes give some of my influence about an engineering direction. Um, and it also, they become the, you know, more, I hate to say it, but like naggy clients. They're the ones who are calling you in the middle of the night. Right, right, right. So we generally try to, we're, we're trying to move in the direction of, of larger clients and, uh, and startups as well. Okay. So as you've grown the company from just yourself after the split up to a team of 12, how has your role changed? So are you still involved in day-to-day technical decisions? Are you still even digging into the code yourself? Or are you now mostly just a pure manager? Yeah, so that's actually one of the most common questions I do get. Um, so yeah, as I, as I build the company, I am getting a little bit further from the day-to-day code writing. Um, more or less, I jump in during um, you know, final pushes uh, and also during kickoffs as well because I, I like to you know, maintain relevancy and be there during the exciting times. Um, but now at this point, I've got, you know, we have back-end cover, we have project management, we have both sides of mobile, we have design. There's really no necessary, there's necessarily no area where I need to be involved unless I want to. That's very interesting. What part do you most enjoy being involved in? Well, it's it's kind of funny, you know. When I was in high school, I'd say, I said I would never not skateboard, but you know, here I am, an adult, and now I skateboard. And I said the same thing about coding. I feel like at some point in my life, I'll never not code. But however, here I am today, and I don't really code that much, and I'm actually very okay with that. Um, I enjoy interacting with people. I like being on the business development front. I like going and talking to clients. Um, I like setting up meetings, I like uh, sending out proposals, and that actually really excites me and interests me. I want to ask you one more question about hiring, because I realize you're somebody who has a background in computer science, you have a bachelor's degree in computer science. Um, Does that affect your decision-making process when you're hiring a new potential employee, whether or not they have that academic background, or are you comfortable with somebody who might just have been self-taught or come through a boot camp? Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. Um, I feel like I have a different answer for that every day. Um, most of the time, I would say the degree doesn't necessarily matter. But here's where I find that the degree is helpful. Um, usually, guy, people who don't have degrees generally pick a uh, 
discipline and they, and they head down that path. And they might become experts in that path, but it's hard for them to become cross-discipline. So for example, iOS developers generally will just call themselves iOS developers. Right. However, you know, in order for my company to grow, for, um, for me to get some of my senior engineers, I sometimes need people to jump on Android. I sometimes even need people to help out on the back end. And so people with CS degrees, it's generally easier for them to pick up a new language and be effective using it within a couple of weeks. And that's a great segue to talk about Android. So I noticed on your website that you market yourself mostly as an iOS company, but you also do Android projects as well. And I, I saw that in your services section. So how do you approach a client that comes and wants to do both an iOS launch and an Android launch simultaneously? Do you try to sell them on two native apps, a cross-platform solution, or how do you actually make the decision on which to pitch them on? Uh, what criteria about the project make it more likely to be suitable for a cross-platform solution like a Titanium or whatever framework you guys are using versus two native apps? Yeah, great question. Um, I am a huge opponent of cross-platform solutions, and uh, to be honest with you, I most likely will not build them. I think they make perfect sense for things like games like Unity um, and Corona and things like that, but however, I'm not a huge fan of Titanium and, and the like. So uh, usually that's out of the question. I always pitch... Um, uh, I always pitch native apps per platform, and I generally will pitch them on doing an MVP on a single platform, um, simply because clients love to pivot during the development cycle. And so if we're building the same thing on two separate platforms and they pivot, we're now you know doing double the work to make the changes, whereas we work out all the kinks on the iOS side or the Android side, and then we just do a straight clone on the other. Okay. And is it almost always iOS first? Um, no, not necessarily. It really, it really depends on the clients. Um, so generally, more enterprisey clients um, want Android first. For example, we're doing some internal work with Intel, and actually, they they have a very small iOS application, and we've built like three companion Android applications. And so it really just it really depends. Or uh, another side of the spectrum is um, a lot of the, we do a lot of work with some of the faith-based nonprofits. And so they do things with people out in the third world. And so that's all absolutely Android centric. And then iOS becomes the afterthought. That's another great segue because I noticed that you've done a couple of apps in the Christian space. How did you get into that niche? And has it been helpful to you as a company uh, having some ownership in a niche like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, being a Christian myself, this was a natural transition. Um, and so I got into this space because, frankly, people sent contracts my way because they would say things like, you know, these guys are in line with your values. Would you like to work on them? And so, um, so, that, so I quickly found out that, that it's actually a great niche that developers generally uh, steer clear of. There's actually only sort of a handful of shops that build software in this space, and you know they kind of jump around from uh, from group to group. And um, sorry, what was the follow up question with that? Well, you, has being in this niche been helpful to you as a company? I, I would say absolutely. Um, so you know, oftentimes you know, uh, you know, faith based religion that sort of stuff can be sort of a touchy subject, mm -hmm. um, and it could it could sometimes even be off putting. Um, I feel like it was, it's actually been to our benefit. Um, what a lot of people have said to us is it sort of shows that we have 
some sort of moral and value system. Um, right. Not to say, you know, non-faith-based don't, but it's just, it just seems a little bit more apparent on the out front. So Brandon, in the three years that you've been running Pixagon, what's been the most challenging project? So the most challenging project, I would have to say, is um, one of our ongoing clients. Um, they're called Faith Comes by Hearing, and uh, their sort of goal is to distribute audio Bibles around the world. Um, we actually inherited a uh, platform from a previous development shop. However, it, it's enormous. It's an enormous back-end API, lots and lots of statistical analysis, um, two mobile apps, uh, and front-end web. And the challenge, you know, not only staffing all of the resources that can cover that wide range of uh, skill sets, the other challenge is, is dealing with older platforms. You have, the, you have this sort of balance of writing new code, innovating, patching old code, and fixing existing bugs. And so sort of juggling that, hiring against that, all in a short time frame to, you know, ensure this client's success has definitely been a challenge. And how has the client been helpful in approaching this challenge and communication with them? Has that been sort of a key? Yeah. So one really helpful thing is this client is local in New Mexico. Ah, so okay. we are able to actually go there um, and have a weekly stand up with them and see them face to face and really understand what it is they're trying to achieve and, yeah. um, and you know, help achieve that for them. So we talked earlier about the concept of it not mattering that you're in New Mexico, but here you have a situation where being in New Mexico is actually a big advantage. Um, has it, have there been other local clients that have come to you because you're in New Mexico? Yes, we actually do get a lot of the, the startups um, come to me uh, first because we're, you know, we're obviously one of the largest mobile shops here in New Mexico. So oftentimes, we're the first pass um, when some of the smaller startups are wanting mobile development. That makes perfect sense. And you also mentioned how important the community is to you. So I imagine you guys are involved in local iOS meetups and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We go to, uh, you know, a Cocoa Heads meeting and um, as well as some of the other, you know, TEDx events and things like that. Now, you started out as the founder of this amazing iOS blog, and now you're doing Android work as well as a manager. Have you yourself become uh, knowledgeable about Android programming and such over the years, or have you let that go to your employees more? I think the, uh, I think the big challenge for me was in the hiring process. Um, it was quickly becoming apparent to me that I was having a hard time determining whether an Android developer was good or not. Um, I was fortunate enough to have Java um, in my CS program at UNM. Sure. So learning, at, learning Android was uh, fairly natural and uh, took me only a few weeks to ramp up to the point where I felt effective enough to be able to um, hire and, uh, and guide some developers. You know, it's interesting because recently I myself was thinking maybe I should get into Android because oftentimes I do have clients come to me and say, well, I want to launch both an iOS app and an Android app. And sometimes I need to turn them away because I'm really more of a one-man shop with a couple subcontractors and have to really focus on just iOS. I still found the tooling not quite there on Android. I, I didn't think that the visual design tools were up to Interface Builder. Um, how do you feel about the, the tooling situation on Android now versus iOS? I can't stand writing Android applications. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, Android Studio is 
a little bit better than Eclipse. Um, <laughs> I would say a little less terrible. Um, and uh, but it's it's still it's a big challenge. Um, you know the whole emulator simulator situation. It, you know it's getting better with the tools like Genie Motion and and things like that. However, I still feel it's nowhere near where the iOS simulator is. Uh, and you mentioned the interface building tools. Um, I just I don't love it. Although it's nice that you can you know sort of edit the raw XML as needed, so you can get you can handcraft that if you're interested. Um, Will you and, have the designers actually handcraft the XML, or do you leave it all to the developers? We generally leave it to the developers. Um, most of my developers are pretty savvy with Photoshop, and I know this is the way I like to work: is de designers basically hand out PSDs and let devs do some of the chopping because it's not always obvious to the designer, you know, how assets need to be chopped up. And so, having a little bit of knowledge about Photoshop uh, eliminates a lot of that friction. That makes sense. I want to talk about a couple posts from your blog. And you write a blog that's actually about consulting, very, very relevant to this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, let's start with a blog post that you wrote called Your App Idea Most Likely Falls Into One of Three Categories. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, what those three categories are and why having an app in one of those three categories is probably not the best thing in the world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, off, we, we all get pitched applications, and so I, these are the, sort of the three criteria I usually evaluate against. And so the first category is the app has been done before. You know, this wasn't the case early on in the App Store market, but now with millions and millions of applications, most likely the app has been done before. So I'm talking, you know, the Instagram clones, the Uber for X, etc., um, and so really, you know, when I present this to a client and they sort of fall into this category, the real way for them to be successful is how are you going to innovate on this particular idea? Um, second category things fall into is the app idea is, is just too niche. So, you know, for some reason, someone hasn't built it before and there's most likely a reason. It's, you know, it might be just some joke between you and your buddies or something like that that the rest of the world doesn't get. Um, who knows? Sure. And then finally, there's there three. There's a reason the app doesn't exist. So I sort of mentioned this in the post that you know uh, I, I get pitched the idea of mapping out a grocery store all right, the time, right. almost as much as the Instagram thing. You know, I, I said I said that you know my dentist was pitching it to me while he's doing my teeth one day. Yeah. <laughs> and so. There's a technical reason that that doesn't exist, and it's be, you know it's because it would be too cumbersome to integrate with their archaic inventory management system. You'd have to get them on board or require a lot of capital. Grocery stores change their layouts frequently, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are those are sort of the three main categories. Um, and the last I, and I, one is pretty broad, right? That last that third category. There's a reason why the app doesn't exist. There could be so many reasons, and somebody without a technical background might not be able to pick up on them, right? And how do you tell the client that their idea is basically a bad idea for one of these three reasons, especially that third one that they might not really comprehend fully? How do you break the news to them? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, oftentimes I, I just feel it's best to be upfront with them. And, you know, I've had clients thank me for being open and honest. And sometimes, you know, I'll tell them, you know, if you don't believe me, you're, here's a I'll refer them out and I'll say, hey, you're welcome to go talk to these folks. If you can get it built by them and it's maybe something I'm overlooking, 
please go and do it. You know, I, I use uh, the crew service sometimes. and sure. uh, Yeah, I'm a part I, of crew. I'll send them to crew. Um, and um, just because, just you know, if, if for some reason I – and maybe, maybe either it's just a technical hurdle I can't solve. And so yeah. I would be happy to, happy to give someone else the business if they can. Yeah, yeah. But it's always a hard conversation, right? Because this person is so excited about their idea. And they come to you and they think, well, this is my next step is getting this great team at Pixagon and build it. And you have to break kind of to them what might be earth shattering news. They, you know, they, and I've had similar experiences where people come to me with Instagram clones on a regular basis. And it's just like, don't you understand that your probability of success with this is very, very low? And for, for the reasons that you cite in the blog post and telling them that I find an emotionally distressing conversation for me because I feel like I'm crushing their dreams a little bit. Do you feel ever like a dream crusher? <laughs> you know, uh, yes and no. I think one other thing I, I try to do to help soften the blow is I try to offer them a way that they're, that we could potentially do their application. So so that they still, you know, because most of the time, if they're at the point where they're talking to you on the phone, it's been keeping them up at night. Yeah. They're literally dreaming about this. They think they're going to be the next Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Um, so, for example, you know, the grocery store application, I would, I would turn around and suggest, hey, you know, well, while we can't necessarily map the grocery store, why don't you talk about a big chain store like Costco, who has the same layout for most places, Yep. And at least just categorize things. So, hey, I'm looking for the frozen foods or I'm looking for tenant, you know, the sporting equipment. And start with something a little bit more broad and even see if you can get user adoption. Um, and so oftentimes they're very open to um, some of these sort of suggestions that I've had. And I've even had clients who have sort of changed their tune a little bit and then I've eventually taken on their work. Right, right. That makes sense. So let's talk about another blog post you wrote, Ship Products You Are Proud Of. Tell us about your, the concept behind that post. This, that post was a, sort of a rant after I was just frustrated by uh, other developers. Um, okay. So, um, you know, I, as a consultant, as a company, it's very seldom that I get to actually work on greenfield applications. Um, you know, most of the time we're inheriting source code from somewhere else. Um, I mean, if you're fortunate enough to work on greenfield applications all the time, then more power to you. Let me know where your pipelines are. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it's not the case. And so we're dealing with legacy code that may or may not be good. Um, and it's never good. It's, it's never good. You're kidding, right. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's almost never good. And, you, and so, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to glance over the post real quick. So it, it becomes it becomes immediately apparent, you know, what the developers were thinking, whether or not they you know outsourced it to a team without proper direction. Um, they weren't following proper you know code standards or guidelines, or they're using junior developers, or they were just in a rush. And you know, this was meant to just be an MVP, and it was slapped together. Um, and so this this post was sort of my rant, saying let's. Let's all just stop worrying so much about the money. Let's build things we are absolutely proud of, and the entire community will be better because of it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had Marcus Zar on the show a few months ago, and he said something very similar, that there's kind of a cultural problem right now 
with the quality standards that exist um, in the community, in the iOS and, and Mac development community, where maybe the quality of the apps, the code that's going into the apps that are out there right now has actually gone down over the mm-hmm. last few years. Is that something that, that you've been aware of or that, that you've detected in some way? Well, I think it's kind of natural um, as the market gets more and more saturated with developers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, with as more publications come out, more boot camps, things like that, it's sort of touted as everybody can be a mobile developer. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably experienced this as well. A lot of times my friends will see, you know, the freedom in my lifestyle, etc. Hey, I want to be a mobile developer too. Right. So they'll, you know, they'll ask me to recommend a couple books and maybe they'll even get to as far as trying to go grab a contract. And yeah. so the, I think it's a lot of these hobbyist level developers that, you know, might be sort of uh, contributing to that. Yeah, we've um, kind of come full circle into our conversation earlier about um, having that academic degree and the difference between that and maybe just going to a boot camp or being self-taught. I mean, there's definitely people who come out of boot camps who are excellent, who are really, really top-notch. But the average as a whole is probably lower. Is that fair to say? I would say so. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the developer. It's just that they don't get some of the core foundations of computer science. Right. Um, and and they, so when you don't necessarily understand the underlying technology, you're basically at that point then just becoming a copying paster of code. Right, right. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Another topic that comes up from your blog post, which of course I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, um, is how you approach the topic of outsourcing with potential clients. Because you probably have clients, even at your level, where you're getting to very large clients, you probably have clients who are still considering, should I go with uh, American team or North American team or Western European team, or should I go outsource to, let's say, Asia, um, where the costs might be lower, but the communication challenges are greater. Um, how do you approach that question with clients? Right. So, you know, I never want to knock outsourcing because I know there are teams who are doing it successfully and there are some phenomenal developers on the other side of the world. Um, And so what I usually tell them is they are going to find it very challenging to have a successful product unless they have someone who can adequately manage that outsource team. And I'm talking about somebody with an engineering background. I mean, it's one thing to have... Uh, you know, a lead iOS engineer sort of, you know, driving the entire project while he has some, you know, people in, say, India doing maintenance and small updates and things like that. But it's a whole other thing for an inexperienced client to just hand off their project to an India dev shop in hopes that they're going to churn out something that they want and send it back. Right. And have you been in the situation where you've had to manage an ongoing project with an outsourced team? So coordinate the outsourced team maybe with your team or um, actually just take over the project from an outsourced team? Most of the time, you know, I would say a lot of the time I am already inheriting projects from outsourced teams. I see. So, you know, I, you know, I always make the joke, if you, and I'm sure you've heard it, if you think it's expensive hiring the professional, wait till you hire the amateur. Right. But that really, yeah. you know, that really rings true in this scenario. So um, much of my, you know, much of my clients will come to me and say, hey, I already spent X on this project outsourcing it. Um, you know, now can you do it? And this client ends up paying, you know, two to three X more than they originally would if they had gone with uh, my team in the first place. And sometimes I've had it to where it's literally full circle. Brandon, we don't want to go with your shop. You're too expensive. 
you know, six months later, it's a sob story. Okay, we're ready to go with your shop. Yes. No, I've had a very, very similar experience um, with a team that had been outsourced and was partially here, but it was mostly outsourced code. They came back to me and said, do you want to take this over? I could have literally built the app for a third of what they had ultimately put into it, even though my prices were much higher than the outsourced team because of the amount of revision that I had to go into correcting all of the original mistakes. Wow. So I, I think there's a lot of stories like this out there. Um, and like you said, I think there are great teams out there in India and China, but finding one um, is, is not always easy. And then on top of that, um, the ones that are really great are probably charging prices commensurate with their greatness. So uh, <laughs> exactly. Are, right. So how much are you really saving in the end anyway? But sure. it's a very interesting topic. Um, so I want to talk now a little bit more broad outside of your business, but more just how you see the whole landscape of the Apple ecosystem evolving for us developers and for us consultants in particular. So what's your opinion on Apple's current direction and how they've ex been expanding into new platforms the last couple of years? How do you see that playing out for consultants? Hmm. I think, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, Apple's probably trying to solve the problem of um, saturation in the market by expanding into some of these other platforms we see with the TV and the watch. But so far, it doesn't seem like those platforms quite have the draw that the mobile, you know, the iPhone and the iPad did. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much effort they put forth into those those uh, those new platforms. Um, I think it's Apple choosing to open source Swift was a really exciting and interesting move. Um, mm -hmm. I think it gives developers a little bit more security for the future. Um, so one thing I'm really looking forward to is the fact that you know Swift can compile and run on say Linux machines. I would really like to see you know ser servers and things like that written in Swift someday so that Theoretically, iOS developers could write the end-to-end -end solution without having to write, learn new backend languages such as PHP and Ruby on Rails and things like that. How do you approach your backends right now? Do you guys build them in-house? Do you use something like Parse? Uh, how, how are you doing your backends right now? Well, I mean, obviously, it's about using the right tool for the job. So we we do use Parse for smaller applications that make sense for mm -hmm. Parse. Sure. Um, However, most of the time we um, build our backends in-house. Um, they're sort of microservice-centric uh, Rails applications on uh, on Amazon. Oh, very cool! And we were talking. You were mentioning before about Apple's uh, open sourcing of Swift and uh, perhaps being able to use it on Linux on the server side in the future. Uh, do you, is one of the big advantages of that the ability to share code between the client and the server? And is that something you're really missing right now? Um, not necessarily. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think it would be helpful to share client-server code, as I feel like those are a little too distinct. Um, I more mean it from, uh, as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, developers tend to sort of head down one disciplinary path. So, you know, we have a lot of developers who are just putting all of their stock into Swift. And so I think this will open up some more doors for those guys uh, so that they don't have to spend their time learning a whole new language. They might just have to learn different design paradigms. That makes perfect sense. Sure. Have you had clients coming to you asking for tvOS apps, watch apps, iPad Pro apps? Um, I do have some existing uh, 
clients who are getting really excited about those spaces. Um, nothing too serious just yet. I think everybody's still sort of waiting to see what's going to happen with these platforms. Right. When are they going to become the next big thing? Whereas right now they're just maybe going to be the next big thing. Exactly. I mean, I know, man, my Apple Watch sits in my drawer. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you guys on the Swift transition at Pixagon? Are you doing everything in Swift already? Are you doing some things in Swift? How have you guys been managing the transition? So to be honest with you, we just hit our very first file new projects, checked the Swift box yesterday. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Swift came out a year and a half ago. You just started your first brand new project in Swift yesterday. A lot of people jumped on the bandwagon early. Why did it take you guys maybe a little bit longer than some of the bandwagon people to get on the Swift train? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of the applications that we work on are not greenfield applications. We have inherited them from other dev teams. So we're mostly working in Objective-C just from these legacy apps. Um, also, we were a little concerned about you know, Swift's transition from 1.x to 2.x and just waiting to see how the platform matured as a whole before really uh, diving into it. That makes sense. I'm actually writing a book about um, Swift right now. And the changes that they've already planned from Swift 2 to Swift 3 are already making me go back and redo you know, entire examples. So I definitely feel you on the, on the evolving nature of the language. Um, do you see Swift as completely replacing Objective-C going forward, or do you see Objective-C as always being a companion? It's a really interesting question. Um... I feel like at least for the next you know, five to ten years, Objective-C is not going anywhere. I mean, we have some enormous, enormous applications still written on Objective-C that would simply be too costly to do a complete transition to Swift. Not to mention, I don't see a real need to transition to Swift just for the sake of transitioning an application to Swift. So you don't see um, the advantages of Swift being great enough that it's worth porting an app from Objective-C to Swift? No, not at all. Okay, that's very interesting. Because there's some people who feel that some of the inherent type safety and um, the, just the, the null errors that optionals get rid of um, are worth it on their own. And there's been some, you know, some articles in the community about that. But I, hmm. I'm kind of on your side. I mean, if you have a huge code base that's already working in Objective-C, it's not practical to rewrite it uh, in Swift just to get those error checking or type safety uh, advantages, right? Plus, that's yeah. Plus, it's a tough sell on your client. You know, it's like, hey, we've spent you know months to years working on this product. Now we're going to throw the entire thing away. We're not going to use any of the same code that we had before, and we're going to still spend another months to year. And you're going to basically end up in the same spot and with maybe a more stable application, but they don't necessarily care about it being more stable. Right, especially if the crashes are one in a thousand, right? Something right, like or, the, you know, or the natural follow-up is, well, why isn't it stable to begin with? <laughs> right, 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 of course, of course. There's also the piecemeal approach, so you could do part of the app uh, in Swift that's already written in Objective-C, add new components in Swift. What do you think about that approach? So we've, we've definitely done a little bit of that. So, you know, as the client wants new screens in the application, we might start new view controllers in Swift, yes. 
Now, having a team of 12, have you had to take some time for Swift education as a company? So you probably have some developers on this new project who are totally on board with Swift, and you probably didn't pick the, the uh, men or women who are more on the fence about Swift, right? So is it, has it been an equal transition? Have you had to do some company education? How have people been getting their feet wet with Swift? Um, you know, I'm usually pretty good about getting my employees sort of the resources they need to educate themselves. For example, you know, purchase Udemy courses or, um, you know, the renderlick.com subscription, uh, things like that. I really encourage them to, you know, move forward. But also, you know, the type of people I feel like I hire are guys who are already just going to be excited about learning these new technologies even on their free time, you know. I love hiring programmers that not only do they program for a profession, but they also program as a hobby. And so it's really nice when they're like, hey, I just you know, spent holiday break learning Swift. I really want to implement that in the next client project. I really like to see things progress that way. Um, so, and, and you mentioned about you know, just company-wide adoption. Um, you know, really, I'm, what I find is I just get the senior guys on board and you know, the junior guys, I'm happy to have you know, kind of cross-train them as, as we're on the client projects. That makes perfect sense. Have you guys had to do any Mac development over the years? Has that been something that has ever come up? Um, no, actually we haven't. Is that something you'd want to do in the future? Do you see the Mac as a bit of a dying platform? Um, yeah, to be honest with you, I don't have very many apps installed on my Mac. Um, you know, for the Mac, I generally go out to the browser as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So looking again at the big picture of your business, what are your goals in 2016 for Pixagon? Um, so really it's just to continue, uh, continue building the team. I really take a real incremental approach, um, in hiring resources. So just to continue building the team and, um, to, I really, I, I keep telling my team, I want one more client in 2016. So we've been very fortunate to have a few flagship clients that sort of are longer term engagements. And I really, really like this, uh, this approach and the style of development. So my goal in 2016 is basically just to land one client. Wow, that's, that's really very different from uh, anyone else I've talked to. I just, <laughs> just want to land one client in 2016. So a lot of your work is continuing development on apps that you might have already built years ago, right? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, or or some of these you know larger platforms that we inherited from other dev shops, um, essentially acting as the development team for a you know tech company that doesn't otherwise have their own internal development team. And why do these companies choose to hire an outside consultant instead of just building a team in house when these engagements last for multiple years? Um, I think it's just because it's not necessarily their core business. Um, it's not what they're good at and it's not what they're interested in doing. Um, and so, so it's just easier for them, you know, at a little bit of a higher cost, uh, to just, to just trust a team that already has the expertise. Are there any mistakes you've made with Pixagon in 2015 or over the past three years that you want to improve on in 2016? Any mistakes? Um, you know, just... Being a little loose with some of my um, guidelines, you know, when you when you hire thing, when you work with like your friends and stuff like that, and you let the guidelines be a little bit loose, it's really easy for us to get into potentially uncomfortable conversations, things like that. 
Um, I felt that engaging my lawyer a little bit more so that we have very clear contracts, uh, very clear employment agreements, um, and uh, I think that's going to be very helpful going forward so that everybody's on the same page, everybody knows what we're doing, and it helps avoid some of the uh, uncomfortable nature of uh, you know, working with people you already know. That's, there's one other side question I want to ask you before we finish up. Mm-hmm. It's a really great segue into a conversation I had with Michael Fellows about NDAs. How do you feel about NDAs and how willing are you to sign them? Um, so I, I even have sort of a joke post on my uh, blog about this, how I, just, I don't sign NDAs, but I do sign NDAs when, when they're necessary. Um, I generally take the approach, I will not sign NDAs it, before somebody at least gives me some information, right? Uh-huh. Because you never know what you're signing to. We're, you know, we're consultants, we need to be able to compete in the space, and we need to be able to compete on similar products. Um, and I also won't sign NDAs for products that are too close to others. So like, like we've been talking about these Instagram clones, I would never sign an NDA when I knew it was something close to an Instagram clone. However, the time when it's very important to sign NDAs are when the IP is very specific to the client that you are signing the NDA for. So for example, of course I'm going to sign an NDA to work with Intel. Um, you know, or of course I'm going to sign an NDA for, to work with somebody who has a pending patent or something on the technology that we're going to be implementing. My final question for you, Brandon, is how have things changed from when you were one person in 2012 to 12 people now in 2016? What's been the biggest change in your day-to-day life at Pixagon? So to be honest now, I'm, I'm happier now than ever. Um, when I set out to build Pixagon from a one-man consultancy, my goal was really to provide some jobs for people who were otherwise not super valued in their job. And so it's super, super fulfilling to be able to create a work environment where people feel they're doing meaningful work and they're being well compensated and rewarded and acknowledged for that work. That's one of the huge ones. Also, um, you know, a lot of my time has been freed up actually. So rather than being glued to my computer for 10 to 12 hours a day, um, you know, I can take breaks midday to say go to the zoo with my family, or if we go on trips, I'm not super glued to my computer all the time. You know, there's there's this this quote I read online the other day that said, you know, being a consultant's great. Uh, the flexibility is awesome. You get to choose which 18 hours of the day you want to work. <laughs> um, but uh, that's that's sort of been transitioning away from that being the case, which has been really great. Brandon, is there anything you want to plug on the show? Um. You know, just, uh, just Pixagon. Um, right now, that's where I'm putting all my, my focus and my energy. We can be found at pixagon.com. Um, you know, we have the end-to-end team to build uh, mobile, back-end, design, you name it. Great, great. And, of course, uh, they'll be in the show notes as well. Perfect. Brandon, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I think it's going to be very informative for our listeners as well. Hey, thanks so much for having me, David. This has been a blast. Thanks for listening to my interview with Brandon Trebitowski of Pixagon. I want to remind you once again to give me feedback at Dave Kopeck on Twitter, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-C. Please leave us a review on iTunes. And also, please tell your developer friends about Consult, especially if they're consultants themselves. Can't hurt to grow the audience. Okay, I'll see you guys in March. Have a great month.